All right, let me just run over some uh, announcements very rapidly. Uh, Trafer Seminary registration is open and goes through the 19th, which is about um, 10 days from now. So that's about, what, Wednesday or Thursday next week. And then, um, and if you're a member, attend here, you can uh, t take up to two classes, tuition free. And um, it's too late for the uh, registration fee free period. So that's over with. And then uh, memorial service for Bill Payne will be Saturday afternoon at 1 o'clock this coming Saturday, January 13th. Men's prayer breakfast for Saturday, January 20th has been canceled, but the deacons meeting will be what? Oh, okay. Yeah. Prayer, uh, men's prayer breakfast is canceled. And... Um, the annual congregation meeting is Sunday, February the 11th. The deacons will meet on um, Saturday morning at, uh, Alan's not in here, I'll say 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock, because that way they can get done early and get about their their business. All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Before we get into the study this evening, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. A couple of uh, prayer requests I just want to highlight for you. One is Dan Ingram, that he's sort of taken a little bit of a turn to the uh, worst since uh, right around Christmas, had some... He had a virus, and that seemed to trigger some negative reactions neurologically in relation to his tumor. And um, he's having trouble processing comprehension um, as well as communication. And so just pray, pray for Dan that they can maybe get this straightened out, and, and uh, he'll come out of this. Uh, I saw him or talked to him on the phone about two or three days maybe before all this happened, and uh, it was a really good conversation. He seemed to be doing pretty well. So be in prayer for Dan, and also uh, be in prayer for the upcoming uh, Chafer Conference, which is the 4th through the 6th of March, and the topic is Israel, past, present, and future. Our keynote speaker in the evening will be Randy Price, who is now retired from being a professor at uh, Liberty University, and of course, he's written, I don't know, 30 or 40 books. Uh, he's a uh, world-class archaeologist and is going to address things related to Scripture and the war in Israel. Uh, also will be some other things, and we'll put that out. Another thing, we're going to have a special event, and I want a lot of participation in this. Uh, this just sort of came together, so it's very interesting. We've had um, Ambassador Yorm Edinger uh, speak here several times over the years. Yorm and I met about 12 years ago, 14 years ago now, time flies. And um, he speaks to my Israel tour groups every time we're in Israel. And he comes here because he was a consul general here uh, back in the 80s. Uh, he has friends here, so he comes here for one thing or another at least once or twice a year, and we always get together for breakfast. Uh, he's going to be speaking at Beth Yashurn, Congregation Beth Yashurn, which is down on Beechnut over by Meyerland, on Friday night. I believe Friday night is the 16th of February. 
and uh, I was already thinking about asking him to come and maybe speak on I- Israel, what's going on today, current events, and uh, nobody knows more of the details than Yoram does. I mean, he's just a walking encyclopedia. And so he's, he, and then I, that morning I got an email from him. And I said, do you want me to come and speak at your church while I'm there? And so uh, I decided we haven't had a conference on Israel since before COVID, about the year before COVID. Usually about every other year we would have a Friday night and a Saturday all focusing, get some uh, Jewish speakers as well as uh, uh, Christians speaking on different issues. So this is this is uh, an important time for Israel and for Jewish people. They feel very threatened right now uh, because of the rise of anti-Semitism. And so I thought that um, that week we might not, I haven't decided this yet, might not have Wednesday night, I mean Tuesday night Bible class that week. We'll have Wednesday night and invite, I've invited, um, um, his name's right here, Olivier Melnick. Uh, Olivier is French. I believe he has said that his father was uh, killed in the Holocaust. Uh, he doesn't seem to be that old. But his sort of his area of expertise is anti-Semitism. I've heard him speak three or four times. He's outstanding. Uh, up until just recently, he lived up in the Northwest, and he moved down. He's just outside of Dallas, so the travel logistics aren't, aren't a problem. And he's going to come come here on that Wednesday and talk about what is uh, about anti-Semitism worldwide and what's going on today. And that will be Wednesday night. On Thursday night, Yoram will speak. And I'm also inviting the uh, folks from Beth Yashern to come on that Thursday, Thursday night. And um, then on Friday night, I would like us to have a significant number of people from West Houston Bible Church show up at Shabbat service at Beth Yashern, and Yorm will be speaking on a different topic. The day that I kind of came up with this idea and everything was coming together, I just so happened in the coincidence of the plan of God to be having lunch with uh, Rabbi Brian Strauss, who's the head rabbi at Congregation Beth Yashern. And I said, what do you think about this? I'm just kind of looking at this, and he didn't even know I knew Yoram, and he was I think he was a little pleasantly surprised that I had, had a long-term friendship with Yoram. And he said, uh, I said, what do you think about us, me inviting a bunch of folks from West Houston Bible Church to come to Shabbat service when he speaks on Friday night? And his eyes just lit up. He was very excited about that. And, and it really drove something home to me is that in the Jewish community right now, there's a tremendous sense of isolation and they have lost a sense of security. Since, since the Holocaust, they built a sense that they had a secure home base in Israel. That was shattered on October 7th. And when you, if you're Jewish, whether you're religious, secular, whatever you are, and you see the riots that have been going on in this nation that are anti-Semitic and pro-Hamas for the last four months, then you are asking yourself questions. And I've heard this from some of my Jewish friends. Should I continue to have a mezuzah on my doorpost at my house? Am I safe? Should I have certain things at my house that I put up a menorah during Hanukkah. 
because of the th- threats of anti-Semitism that are now uh, so prominent in this nation. So the fact that a Christian church would come and join them on a Shabbat service on a Friday night uh, to hear uh, Yoram, uh, I think meant a lot to him. And I think it would um, it would mean a lot to people at, at Beth Yushern. Beth Yushern is the largest conservative uh, synagogue, and that doesn't mean they're conservative. It just means they're not as liberal as Reformed. That's how it happened. You had Orthodox here, and then people just wanted to get rid of all the Orthodox, everything, and so they went all the way to the left, almost to the edge of the cliff, and that was the reform movement that started in the mid-18th century. And But there were people who said, well, you've got a lot of good points, but we don't want to go quite that far, so we're going to be a little more conservative. So they became known as the conservative ones. All right, so that's how you understand those terms. They do not mean what they mean in a Christian context. Reformed in Christian context usually means something that is fairly conservative, and conservative means something that is fairly conservative. So anyway, with that, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful that we can come together this evening and we can uh, focus on this continued study that we have in just an overview of the Bible to come to understand and see how all of the parts fit together and understand the uh, overall narrative of Scripture that we might have a better grasp of what you are trying to communicate to us from your Word. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things tonight as we go forward in our study as we get out of, start to get out of Genesis and into Exodus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we haven't done this in a while. Um, before I get to the timeline, uh, tonight we're going to look at Israel versus Egypt. The, we won't get into that so much tonight. If that's the second part of the lesson tonight. It's what happens to Abraham's descendants that pretty much covers things from, things from Genesis 22 to the end of Genesis and a little bit in the first couple of chapters in Exodus. So here we have our timeline. And we haven't done this in a while to get everybody to stand up and we'll go through our hand motions and, and uh, that way we can understand in these uh, 11 Old Testament e- events and, and eight New Testament events the whole panorama of the scripture. So in about 15 seconds here, you're going to be able to go through and tell the whole story of the Bible. Okay, ready? Creation, fall, flood, tower of Babel, call of Abraham, uh, Exodus, the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and then we have the conquest when they take the land that God has given them, and then we have the united kingdom, so we have one crown, and then there's going to be two crowns because the kingdom splits into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of of Judah. And then there's the exile. It has two phases, 722, the northern kingdom goes out, then the southern kingdom goes out, and then there's a partial return. Now, that's the Old Testament. 400 years goes by, and then the Messiah comes. 
Jesus is born, then he is crucified, then he's buried in the ground, then he rises from the dead. Forty days later, he ascends to heaven. Ten days later, he sends the Holy Spirit, and you have the beginning of the church age. The church age lasts until Jesus comes in the clouds to rapture us to be with him and take us to heaven. Then there will be seven years of tribulation. The tribulation ends when Jesus returns to the earth and he defeats and destroys the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And then there will be a thousand years of the millennial or messianic kingdom. And that ends with an enormous revolt against the rule of the Messiah on the earth, and God will destroy all unbelievers, and then the great white throne judgment. All right, very good. Very good. All right, tonight uh, we're continuing with our study. We have looked at the creation. We've looked at the flood, the judgment of God on the earth, because the thoughts of man's heart were evil continuously. And if he had allowed sin to continue, the human race would have completely uh, destroyed itself. And so God uh, reboots, and there is a worldwide flood that destroys all but eight human beings, and then they repopulate the earth following the flood. There is another revolt that takes place, and that is at the Tower of Babel. At that time, every human being speaks the same language. But because they unite against God, they disobey God, who said to scatter and fill the earth, and instead they want to localize in one place and build this tower unto heaven so that they can make a name for themselves, which indicates they're filled with arrogance. So God then scatters the languages, and because people are now confined to uh, groups that only spoke the same language, they began to spread out over the face of the earth, which was God's original command. But because of the rebelliousness of the human race against God, God has made the decision that he is now going to work through one man and through his descendants. And so at that point, he calls Abraham. Abraham grew up in a pagan environment in Ur of the Chaldees. His uh, family worshipped the moon god, and which was uh, in the, the paganism of that era, each city had their own god within the pantheon of the general culture, and so everybody uh, followed that 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 one particular uh, that one particular god or goddess. And so he somehow, because we know that there were other believers in the God of Adam and the God of Noah and that had followed him. And so uh, like um, Melchizedek, who is mentioned as the priest king of Salem, which was the early name of Jerusalem, that, um, that he has been... Um, that God is calling out Abraham as a believer already because he has already been justified and God is going to use him and reward him with a covenant. A covenant is like a contract. And in that covenant, God promised to make uh, Abraham's descendants as more plentiful than the stars of the sky or the sands on the seashore, that God is going to give them their own uh, land for a nation and that they will be a blessing. He commands that you and your descendants will be a, 
are to be a blessing to everyone uh, on the earth. And the primary way in which that blessing was to come was through the uh, was through the Messiah. They were first of all, God was going to use the descendants of Abraham as the mouthpieces, so to speak, the ones through whom He was going to communicate uh, the prophets for the giving of Scripture. And second, that they would then be the custodians of Scripture and watching over the transmission of Scripture, and that they would be the line through whom this promised Messiah would come. That went back to a promise we studied at the beginning in Genesis 3.15, where God, speaking to the serpent, you can almost picture God wagging his finger at this uh, serpent, saying, uh, you will crush him on the heel but he will, the seed of the woman will crush you on the head. And we saw that that term seed of the woman was an odd term because seed is, as it was translated into the Septuagint, uh, is sperma, which is the, what the male contributes to, reproduct, uh, to reproduction. And so uh, there's a hint there of the future, uh, the future of the virgin birth. And so we have, we arrive with Abraham and the line of the Messiah is going to go through Abraham and he's promised, uh, God promises him a son and that will be a special son. But, but Abraham has to trust God through many different tests as he grows older until it's impossible for Abraham and his wife Sarah to have a child because they are past childbearing years. And now God visits them and says, next year, this time, in a year, you're going to have a son. And um, and Sarah, Abraham laughs, and Sarah goes off into the tent, and she laughs, and God says, y'all are laughing. To remind you that you've laughed at the promise of God, you're going to call your son's name Yitzhak, which means laughter. And so every time they would call for Yitzhak to come, to dinner, to go to his room or go to his tent or whatever, they would be reminded that they laughed at the promise of God. And so that brings us up to the end point, which we looked at a couple of lessons back, and that is the sacrifice of Isaac. God never intended for Abraham to go through a sacrifice of Isaac, but Abraham's faith in the promise of God had to be tested. Does he really trust me? And the New Testament tells us that Abraham realized that, that God was indeed going to fulfill the, his covenant promises through, through Isaac. And even if he killed Isaac, God would just raise him up from the dead so that he would fulfill his promises. And of course, we know that, that God stayed his hand and he did not kill his son. His, it's called his only son, emphasizing that he is a picture for us of the coming uh, seed of the woman, the Messiah, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then um, God provided a sacrifice to substitute for Isaac, and a ram was caught in the bushes right there uh, by the altar that Abraham had built. And so this is a picture of the what is necessary for the salvation of mankind. Human beings are all sinners, every one of us. 
and only Jesus Christ, because of the virgin birth, is born without inherited sin, and he is the God-man, and therefore he is able in his perfect humanity to go to the cross and pay the penalty for us as our substitute. And since we can't do anything to add to that, and and if we do add, try to add to it, it's just a sign of arrogance, so it destroys the gift. We have to trust in Christ as our Savior. So that takes us up to where we've been here in the chart with Abraham. So now we're going to move ahead as to what happens to Abraham's decision, uh, descendants. So we have God's choice of Abraham. Now, he is not electing Abraham to salvation. He is electing Abraham to the position that, that, is a, that he will be the head of the, uh, of the people through whom the seed of the woman will, uh, will uh, be transmitted to the coming of the Messiah. And so we're going to talk just a little bit about his descendants. And, and there's three basic topics in tonight's lesson. First of all, how God protected Abraham's family and takes them into Egypt and into slavery uh, for uh, people think it was for the whole time. It wasn't. It was only probably for the last 120 years. But they are in, in Egypt through this time period, and they will be uh, end up becoming slaves. And it's interesting because sometimes God puts us in really difficult circumstances to protect us, and we're thinking, what in the world are you doing this to me, God? And we want to blame him, and he's got us there to protect us, sometimes to even protect us from ourselves, which is what the case was with uh, Abraham's descendants. We'll ask the question, is God really in charge of history? Or does man decide? Surely it can't be both, can it? And then we'll get to the second topic, which is that God grew Abram's family into the nation of Israel during their time in Egypt. They went from approximately 70 when they arrived with Jacob, and when they come out, they're about two and a half to three million. And this is not impossible, but it is remarkable that God so blessed them. They had almost uh, no no infant mortality, and so they were able to uh, be extremely uh, uh, fertile and to have many children and to multiply greatly. And then we'll see how uh, God saved Israel from Egypt. Now, next time we're going to get into the confrontation between uh, the kingdom of man, that is how man in his rebellion against God has established himself in opposition to God versus the kingdom of God. And this is pictured or depicted in the historical events of the, um, of the exodus, of the challenge to the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, free them from their slavery, and the ten plagues. So we'll get into all of that next week. So here we have a chart of the descendants of Abraham. Now that looks like a lot of detail there, but it, this is really a very, very helpful chart that you can download with the, with the notes. And so we start with the three patriarchs. You have Abraham and uh, his wife Sarah is barren, but it is a miraculous conception that God is able to rejuvenate 
their procreative capabilities so that they can have a son, and that is Isaac. Isaac is married to Rebecca. Rebecca, too, has problems with conception, and so there is a miraculous birth there. She gives birth to twins, uh, Jacob and Esau, and the line is going to go through um, the younger, who is Jacob, by just a few seconds or minutes, and not through Esau, and he will become the one whom God, to whom God will assign a new name, Israel, and he is the progenitor of the uh, 12 sons who are the heads of the 12 tribes. So those are the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting. We'll point this out as we go ahead, but God will consistently reveal himself after this point as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob not the God of Adam, Noah, and Shem. Why not? Why does God always identify himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because he is recalling that covenant that he made with Abraham and that that covenant was still in effect and he was still honoring his side of the deal. The three matriarchs are Sarah, Rebekah, and Leah. But when you get down to Jacob, you notice that he has he has two wives, Leah and Rachel, and he, they have each have a maid servant who is a concubine, which was a legally protected status in their culture. It seems very strange to us, but that was uh, how they did it. Now you'll notice off here the gray figures. You have others who were also uh, involved. You have Hagar, who was a concubine, uh, maidservant of Sarah, and she gives birth to Ishmael, but they are excluded from the line of the seed. After Sarah dies, Abraham marries Keturah, and she has six sons, Zimran, Yakshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Now, all of these, the descendants of Ishmael, the descendants of the sons of Keturah, plus some others mentioned back in Genesis chapter 10 in the genealogy there, are the progenitors of today's Arabs. They're not just all descendants of Esau or Ishmael. They come from a range of uh, descendants going back to, uh, but they all come from that the, the line of, of Shem. So you have uh, the wives and concubines of Jacob here. Leah... He's tricked into marrying because he is really working for seven years with his uncle Laban uh, for the hand of Rachel. But he switches brides under the, um, under the veil. And so uh, Jacob wakes up the next day and he's got Leah. And so... But he loves Rachel, so he makes a deal with Laban. He'll work another seven years if he if Laban will give him Rachel as well. Now, polygamy was practiced at that time, but this wasn't really the focal point of um, uh, of, of what's going on here. They 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 are compromising or assimilating some to the culture. Uh, and you'll often hear people say, well, you know, you had all those people in the Old Testament had had multiple wives. They they were polygamous. Not really. 
not not really and it was always pictured as a real problem and as the source of a number of problems and so um uh, Leah and Rachel are sisters, and then they have the two concubines, Bilhah and, and Zilpah. So Leah is the first to become pregnant, and she has four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And then um, Dan, uh, Ru- um, Rachel is unable to conceive, and she will offer her concubine, offer her maidservant Bilhah as a concubine to Jacob, and Bilhah has two sons, Dan and Naphtali. Then um, Leah's, uh, Leah's maidservant is offered as a concubine to Jacob, and she has two sons, Gad and Asher. Notice that Leah has a bl- light blue shaded background, and so her uh, sons have a light blue background. Uh, Bill has to have a kind of an orange peachy background as she does. Uh, Gad and Ash have a green background, green background for uh, Zilpa. And then you notice that Issachar and Zebulun have a light blue background. And that is because Leah then becomes pregnant again and she has two more sons. Then finally, by the grace of God, Rachel becomes pregnant. It's a real interesting study how God has produced life in dead wombs through history to bring life to Israel, and it's all foreshadowing of the virgin's womb, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Issachar and Zebulun are born to Leah, and then Rachel conceives, and she has two sons, Joseph first, and then uh, Benjamin. And then there is one daughter, uh, Dina, in the Hebrew, Dinah, who is the the daughter of of Leah. So this is Abraham's family. And you have all kinds of stories about them, and they are just as, they, they have sinful trends, and they are stubborn. Jacob is... A trickster and always trying to somehow uh, get something for nothing, but God is going to intervene, and they end up um, having the covenant uh, reconfirmed to them to Isaac and then then to to uh, Jacob. So that gets gets us through that overview of the family. Now, what we're going to see here. As we, go, as we go forward in this particular chart, we have the conflict between the pagan kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And what do I mean by the kingdom of man? Man has set forth to um, run the planet as he see, sees fit apart from God. This is what happened with uh, the line of Cain following uh, uh, their uh, Adam and Eve's ejection from the garden, and they are going to uh, develop a name for themselves. And the same thing happens after the flood with the Tower of Babel. They built the tower to uh, for, as a name for themselves. They want a reputation. It's interesting that when God called out Abraham, he says, and I will make your name great. Abraham doesn't is not told to go out and 
and um, make his name great. He's not out for fame and fortune. He's going to trust the Lord. So the kingdom of man is exhibited in the Tower of Babel, and then it's exhibited in the kingdom of Egypt, which was the powerhouse kingdom uh, in the ancient world. That was the, uh, the, the largest and most wealthy empire in the ancient world. It was the superpower of the, of the ancient world. And the, the Pharaoh is God. The Pharaoh is divine. And whatever the Pharaoh says is, is absolute law. And this is in contrast to the kingdom of God, which instead of being based on works is based on grace. In the kingdom of man, man is going to save himself. He is going to do what it takes to conquer everything and make his name great. And in the kingdom of God, there's a recognition that no matter what man does, he will never be good enough to measure up to the righteousness of God. So he submits himself to the authority of God and depends upon God and his grace to provide for salvation. And in this process, God chooses Abraham through whom he will provide the promised Messiah, the promised seed, and then when Israel is enslaved in Egypt, uh, God will deliver them. And that is exhibited in the 10th plague the, uh, when the uh, Passover feast is instituted and God passes over as he is taking the life of the firstborn in all of Egypt, which is a real threat to Pharaoh, as we will see, because he's going to take the life of Pharaoh's firstborn. And it is a battle between Yahweh, the creator, redeemer God of the universe, and all of these pagan gods. And we'll see that every one of the plagues is, is targeting a particular deity in the Egyptian pantheon. God is showing Pharaoh that he isn't God, that Yahweh is God. And so God is going to, in this environment of paganism in the land God has promised to Israel in Canaan, God has to protect Abraham's family. Do they want protection? No, they don't. You know, they want to go, instead of doing and and maintaining their uh, narrow isolation in the family of God, uh, a family of Abraham, uh, all of the the boys want to intermarry with these um, uh, hot Canaanite young ladies, and uh, then they're going to assimilate and they're going to take their gods and goddesses. As soon as they marry some Canaanite girl, they're going to start going uh, to the fertility uh, worship uh, centers with them. And this is exactly what ha- happens. They are, by the time you get to those 12 sons, they are so compromised, their lives don't look any different from the horrific. Canaanites' lives. And so if God is going to preserve them, he's going to have to take them out of the land that God has, that he promised them, and he's got to take them someplace where they can grow in size to be a great nation, but without assimilating to the surrounding paganism. So God's going to protect Abraham's family, and he takes them down to Egypt there they will grow into the nation of Israel and then God will rescue them from slavery in Egypt 
and bring them back to the promised land. So there's basically two threats to Abraham's descendants as they live in the land of Canaan. And the, so here you have the Israelites, the small group of the 12 sons, one daughter, and they are one, she wants to intermarry with, uh, uh, Shechem, the son of Hamor. Shechem, the city is named for him. And he's just, a, just a rotten pagan. And, um, and, and he is into all of the fertility worship and everything else. And the other boys, like Judah, are running off and going, going to, uh, uh, the pagan, uh, for, uh, priestesses, uh, who are basically temple prostitutes. So the first problem they run into is the, this famine. There's a worldwide famine, and it's it's devastating. And so they are they can't find enough food. So God has to provide food for them. And the second problem is the cultural death coming from their intermarriage uh, with the Canaanites. Now, God had foretold this to Abraham. Abraham's dates are approximately 2050 uh, B.C., where you have this, uh, this uh, covenant. And in the midst of that covenant, in verse 13, God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. So he predicts the the fact that they will be out of the land, how long they'll be out of the land, and that there will be a time period where they will be afflicted uh, by the uh, people in that foreign land. And then God says in verse 14, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So God is going to provide uh, for them. Actually, they'll get uh, paid remunerations for their slavery. So this is the threat, physical death, cultural death. But God intervenes by sending them to Egypt. There, Egypt has food. They will find uh, sustenance there, and they will be able to survive. And also, the Egyptian culture was one of great racial discrimination, ethnic discrimination, and they hated the Shemites. They hated the shepherds. They despised those that were shepherds, and the family of Jacob were shepherds. And so they were despised by the Egyptians to the degree that they were compl- would completely isolate them uh, physically from the Egyptians, they would not eat with them. They couldn't go to store. It was, it was worse than the worst um, d- discrimination and segregation that the United States ever experienced. It, it was the Jim Crow laws were nothing compared to the discrimination in ancient ancient Egypt. And so God uses that because He wants to protect them from the influence. Of um, uh, of the pagans, and they're not going to be uh, influenced by any Egyptian women because the Egyptian women won't even look at them. They view the uh, the Hebrews as uh, the Hebrew shepherds as disgusting. So, what happens to set this up and to get move them out of the land of Canaan is that um, God is going to use Jacob's sinfulness 
in order to create a circumstance where he can move Joseph out of the land. Jacob has shown a bad um, he has shown bad judgment as a parent. He is showing favoritism towards his son. He loves Joseph because Joseph is the uh, firstborn of his favorite wife, Rachel. And so he dotes on Joseph in lots of different ways. We're familiar with the coat of many colors and other things that were going on. And this just irritates and angers the, the, his brothers. And they just grow to hate him. And they come up with a plan where they're going to kill him. They're going to take him out when they're out with the, with the sheep, and they are going to assassinate him and bury him and just come back with his bloody robe and tell, uh, tell their father that, that he, was, um, he was killed by, by wild animals or by marauding uh, uh, Ishmaelites or something. And Reuben, the firstborn, starts to get a guilty conscience over this, and he doesn't think this is a good idea. So he thinks, well, maybe we can make a little money out of this. And when the um, uh, Ishmaelite traders come through, uh, let's sell Joseph to to them. That way we're not guilty of murder, and we can make a little money out of the deal. And so he comes up with that idea, and that's exactly what they do. And then when Joseph gets into Egypt, he is bought by one of the upper officials in Egypt named Potiphar, and he becomes the household servant. But his uh, his boss's wife gets the hots for him and decides that uh, she wants to seduce him, but he won't be seduced. And so she accuses him of rape, and he gets thrown in prison. And because he's in prison, God has to teach him a little patience. And so he's going to be there for a while, and uh, he's going to, going to have to uh, cool his heels. But eventually what happens is that Pharaoh uh, has some dreams that he can't understand. And the word gets around that there's this guy in prison who's interpreted a couple of dreams that came true. And so... Um, he can interpret the Pharaoh's dream. So he comes in and interprets the Pharaoh's dream and tells him that what this dream means is you're going to have seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. And what you need to do during the seven years of prosperity is set aside a significant amount of, of wheat and grain uh, in storehouses so that when the famine begins, you can uh, you have put this into savings, so you have the resources to survive the famine. And the Pharaoh thinks that this despised uh, Semite from Canaan has a wonderful idea, and isn't this interesting? He elevates this despised shepherd to be the number two ruler in the land of Egypt. And so Joseph rules and uh, uh, under uh, Pharaoh's authority, and he is the one who's in charge of making sure everybody, uh, they build the storehouses and they fill them with grain and everything that they need to survive the coming seven years, uh, seven years of famine. And then his brothers encounter the famine back in Canaan. And they go a couple of years, and they're running out of food and starving to death. And finally, Jacob says, I need to send you boys down to, uh, down to Egypt 
to get some some food because they have food. And so he puts, sends them down there, and they come down there, and Joseph hears about them, and he uh, disguises himself, and finally he will reveal himself to them. And this is described in Genesis 45, 4 through 8. Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near, and he said, I'm Joseph, your brother. They can't believe it. They, they're convinced Joseph is dead. And he says, but now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Isn't that interesting? He recognizes that um, this verse, along with the verse in uh, the 50th chapter where he says, you meant it for evil and God meant it for good, are the Old Testament versions of Romans 8, 28, um, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his, his purpose. So he recognizes this, and he said, God sent me here ahead of you so that I can set all of this up, and now you guys can bring, go back and get Dad, and you can bring everybody here, and we're going to be able to survive this, this horrific famine uh, here in Egypt. So... Uh, he repeats that again in verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made, a, made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all this house and a ruler." And in uh, Genesis 43:32, they set him a place by himself. See, this is how they would do when the Egyptians would not eat with with the the Semite shepherds. So they set up Joseph. You're going to eat in that dining room. You're going to eat by yourself. We're going to eat over here by ourselves. So um, they set him a place by himself, and then by themselves. That's talking about when they first came, the uh, brothers and the Egyptians who ate. Uh, with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews. They weren't going to eat with them. They weren't going to do anything with them. And that was, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now here's a map. This is Canaan. This is a Shechem up, which is in uh, the area of Samaria up in the north or what some people wrongly refer to as the West Bank. And um, uh, down here is Hebron. This is the Sinai Peninsula down here. And then over here, this is the Nile River. This is the Nile Delta. This is just the uh, east half of the Nile Delta. And this was the area of Goshen, which was the area where uh, God uh, provided for the Pharaoh. Pharaoh decides, I'm going to send all these Semitic shepherds there. And that is where they'll be away from everybody else. And so over the next 400 years, they're going to grow to a huge population. And a pharaoh will come along later who is scared to death about this because it's like they've grown an entire other culture and uh, uh, virtually have an army of their enemies right in their midst. So that's when he decides to make make them slaves. So a question we ought to address here, because as you see... In this process, Joseph had made 
his own decisions about how he would respond to the circumstances. He could have uh, pouted, he could have fought, he could have done a number of things, uh, but he didn't. And when he ends up in um, uh, in Egypt, uh, he goes through more trials and difficulties, but he is trusting God and he's learning to trust God. And uh, on the other hand, the brothers are making their responsible choices. And remember, the first divine institution that God established when he created Adam and Eve was responsible choice, that the human race cannot survive other than on individual responsibility and making good, responsible choices. When personal responsibility is alleviated through government handouts and many other things, then what that does is it destroys um, it destroys the character of a people and it destroys a culture. So we see the that Joseph is making his own decisions. The brothers are making their own decisions, first to kill him and then to sell him as a slave. And then when Joseph gets there after about probably about 30 years, he recognizes it wasn't the brothers who sent him to Egypt. It was God who sent him to Egypt. And God sent him for a purpose. He didn't understand it for 30 years, but he realized that his purpose was to save his family, and that's why he was there. So a lot of times in our lives, we're going to go through things that we don't understand, and we may never understand. But there are times when we're going to see, oh, that's why the Lord took me through this, and that's why the Lord took me through that, and that's why he took me through this other thing, is he had a purpose. So we have to start with who God is. And I've changed this, the essence of God, to put holy here at the top, as I've been teaching for a number of years now. Holy has the core idea of something that is set apart, something that is unique or distinct. When it is applied to the uh, utensils and the vessels in the tabernacle and later the temple, they're holy doesn't mean they're morally pure or they have some magical essence to them. They are made and they are set apart to the service of God. When you get into looking at the pagan religions of the Canaanites with all of their fertility worships and, and, the, prostitu- and the ritual prostitution uh, that they had in various uh, ritual locations, the ritual prostitutes, male and female, had a the the noun that described them was based on the root Hebrew word kadash, which is the verb for holy, to be sanctified, to be set apart. Well, there's nothing morally pure about them. They're temple prostitutes. There's nothing morally pure about a gold vessel that is in the t- tabernacle or temple. It is set apart to the service of God. A, a, a gold vessel can be neither moral nor immoral. A candelabra can neither be moral nor immoral. So holy doesn't mean righteous and just. Holy means set apart to God. When it's applied to God, and, and we'll see some verses uh, next week on how many times God describes himself as the Holy One of Israel. There is no other God beside me. I am God alone. He says it over and over and over again. And what is he saying when he says, I am the Holy One of Israel? I am the unique one of Israel. There is none like me. 
He says it right there. I am holy. There is none like me. And that's the idea. So God is holy in every attribute. So he's holy in his sovereignty. He's holy in his righteousness. He's holy in his justice. He's holy in his love. He's holy in his eternal life. None is like God. There is no sovereign like God. There is none righteous like God. There is none just like God or loving like God. He is distinct and unique. We come to the omni-attributes. God knows all the knowable. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows every possibility. He knows what would have, could have, should have happened if you made 15 different decisions over the course of your teenage years. And he knows what all of the options would have been and what would have happened if you had taken all of the different options and what their end results would have been. We can't comprehend that. That's why God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. He is distinct. And so God in his sovereignty is able to uh, orchestrate the movement of human beings according to his plan without overriding their personal responsibility, their responsible choice. And so we see that, that, that uh, Joseph's brothers made bad choices. Joseph made good choices and some bad choices. And what happens is God brings about what he intended. He is absolute truth. He's holy in his truthfulness, and he is holy in his immutability. He's the only thing that doesn't change. People change. The universe changes. The earth changes. Climate changes. Everything changes. But God doesn't change. So we get back to this. To understand this, we're understanding the creator-creature distinction. And in the upper level, what we see here is that God is the creator. He is the sovereign. He overrules all of his creation. In the second level, we have the creature. And the creature makes these choices. But God oversees and overrules our choices and brings about that which he intends. So in the episode with Joseph, we saw that the brothers wanted to kill Joseph. That was their initial choice. And then we see that Reuben came along with a different idea to sell Joseph. And so they decided to go along with that. And then they lied to their father about what happened to him. And uh, Joseph was uh, was spared. When he um, got to Egypt, he had the option of living honorably. And therefore, when Potiphar's wife was attempting to seduce him, he runs away. And he could, but he could have easily succumbed and lived dishonorably and unethically and uh, been like everybody else. But he applies what he has learned about God and God's uh, desires. So when you come to the end of uh, Genesis in chapter 50, verse 20, he's again talking to his brother. His dad has just died. They've taken Jacob back to the land of Canaan, and they come back to Egypt, and the brothers are scared. Uh Uh-oh, he's going to get revenge now. Uh, We're all in trouble. And he realizes what's going on, and he calls them together. And as part of his speech, he says, But as for you, you meant evil against me, 
but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. God is ultimately in control. He gives permission. He permits evil and sin for a season. Romans 8.28, we read, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. God overrides our volition at times by various circumstances. How many times have you made decisions that you're going to do this in life or that in life or that, and all the doors are closed? You've made your choice. And I think God recognizes and honors choices that we make, but he doesn't want us to fulfill those choices for whatever reason. But his omniscience factors all of that in. So in this chart, again, we have the um, upper level, the creator, his intentions, God's intentions are always good, and his sovereignty rules over Joseph's life. At the creaturely level, the brothers' intentions are evil. Uh, Their responsible choice here is evil, but Joseph's responsible choice is good. So the outcome is that Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt and Abraham's family is saved so that they are able to survive. Now, in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, one of the significant passages here, remember Abraham was told by God that your family will be in Egypt for 400 years and they will end up being enslaved. Well, God can foretell the future because he is omniscient and he is able to say what will happen because he is able to bring it about. In Isaiah 46, 9, we have a test. How do you know the difference between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the other false gods? Remember the former things of old, God says, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. See, all of that means God is holy. There's nothing like him. He is unique and distinct God of the, uh, he created everything. And one evidence is he declares the end from the beginning. He can tell the future because he knows everything. There's nothing uh, hidden from him. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my good pleasure. Okay, so that brings us to our second section for the night out of three, and we've gone almost an hour. Try to cover, you know, about 25 chapters in one lesson. Okay, so Abram's family grows into the nation Israel. And we have the description here in of God renewing the covenant with uh with with Jacob in Genesis 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, came to Beersheba, and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, uh, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. And he will change Jacob's name from uh, heel grabber or chiseler, something like that, to Israel. He's, he's a prince with God. He, is, uh, he clings to God. He is someone who is 
uh, close to God. We come to Exodus. In the beginning here, there arose a new king over Egypt who didn't know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they, that is this uh, people of this new, new Pharaoh in Egypt, set up taskmasters over them, the Israelites, to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh's supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. Now, there was a Ramses II later on, but if there's a Ramses II, what else can you say about Ramses? There's a first. So a lot of people stumble on this because in the early 19th century when they were just studying Egyptian history, they thought, oh, Ramses II, he was this glorious Pharaoh. That must be the Pharaoh of the Exodus, and they misdated, misinformed, and screwed up uh, their understanding uh, of the Bible because they misidentified this. This Ramses isn't Ramses II. It was another Ramses that was much older. And the passage goes on and says, But the more they, that is the taskmasters, afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. I love the way that is quoted in the Ten Commandments, as Cecil B. DeMille is the narrator. They served with rigor. It was hard, miserable. Sometimes God takes us through miserable events in our lives because of what he's going to do in the end result. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. And and then we see that God is going to develop them into a nation. They go from an individual of Abraham to the Jacob's family, about 70 went down to Egypt, and then they become a nation Israel. Their primary purpose is to record God's word and to be mission, secondly, to be missionaries to a pagan culture. Now, this is a great thing to think about. In the church age, Jesus told Christians that we're to go throughout the world to take the gospel. But in the ancient world, he was going to make a great nation out of Israel so that all those in the world would come and say, wow, look at this thing that God has done. And he gave them a piece of real estate that was at the crossroads of every major trading route uh, in the Middle East. Everything had to pass through that area of the Middle, Middle East. So God responds to their prayers. He hears their groaning and remembers his covenant with what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not Abraham, Ishmael, and the Arabs. It's always Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. So that was the B point. It's a lot shorter than the A point, wasn't it? So now we're at the C point, so we might get out of here before midnight. This is a story of how God saved Israel. And it begins with God calling out a deliverer who will bring them out of the land. And this is Moses. 
And the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. He is distinct from God the Father. He's distinct from Yahweh. He is the angel or messenger of Yahweh. And they, there are places in the scripture where conversations between them are recorded. So they're clearly two different people. And they are both fully divine and fully worshipped. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, that is Moses, in a flame of fire. You have a burning bush that doesn't burn. And he looked, uh, Moses looked, behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and, and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Was the ground morally pure? No. But it was set aside because it was where God was. And he said, I identified himself. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. See, God is connecting the dots. He's saying, I'm the God of the covenant, and I'm going to fulfill that covenant. And he, he might have even reminded Moses that, remember, I told Abraham, y'all, we're going to be here for 400 years, and last time I checked my Apple Watch, we're about there. So he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in chapter 3, the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. For I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Stalactites and Stalagmites. Just seeing if anybody's awake. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So as we wrap up, this God calling himself Abraham, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, reminds us that God made three specific promises to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing. That it, it was through the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, he would make a great nation that would be a blessing to the whole world. And that he would give them land that would be theirs forever and ever. But if they didn't obey God, God would let him live in the land that he gave them. But he will eventually tell them that I will take you out of the land, but I will bring you back and you will have it forever and ever. So this is in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Then to Isaac, the seed, the son, God, uh, Abraham's only son, he confirmed his covenant. In Genesis 26, uh, 1 through 5, and we see here, it says, "Dwell." In, God tells him, dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands. And I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. 
just a side point. What is it that that initiates a covenant? Most people will say sacrifice. It's the oath. Notice that's what he mentions here. He doesn't mention the sacrifice. He mentions the oath that he made. That's relevant for many things later on. Um, And he says, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. He repeats it again to to Jacob. And he does this um, as Jacob comes out of Beersheba and goes towards Haran, that's way up north. So this place, we went there this last year in Israel. This is just east of Bethel. It's identified in other places as between Bethel and I. And we went there. And it is understood. Uh, there's no debate about this location. And this is where this this took place, where he sees it's not really a ladder. It's a staircase to heaven. And in Genesis 28, 13, and 14, he identifies himself as the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. That's what he did. Jacob got buried. um, He's buried at Hebron in the cave of Machpelah, which is the cave that Abraham bought to bury Sarah in. And it's interesting. I didn't bring this out, but if you go back to that chart, look at that later, that Leah is the mother of Sarah. Six of the children of the sons. Six of the tribes go to Leah. It is Jacob and Leah, not Jacob and Rachel, who are buried at Machpelah. Rachel got sick and died <coughs> elsewhere, so they buried her elsewhere. Uh, but God promises to bring him back to the land. And then in Exodus 3, when Mo, uh, Moses says, okay, if I go to these people, who should I say sends me? And God says that his name, it means I am. It, it means a self-existent one. It's the to be verb, the verb for existence. And so uh, he gives this meaning. This meaning apparently was not known, though the name was known earlier, but the meaning that he is saying, I am the self-existent one, and that is how you will identify yourself to me. So here we have the chart. He is I am. He is self-contained, self-existent, self-fulfilled, absolutely independent of all else, perfect and complete. In the second box, I am present with my people. I am the very same God who promised to be with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the third box, I am the God who acts and will reveal myself through my sovereign actions in history. And so after this, Moses and Aaron went, to, went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who's this Yahweh? I never heard of him. 
Why should I obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, nor will I let Israel go. And so we'll get to the rest of the story next time. Anybody have any questions? Remember all that. Hear it again and again and again. All right, Father, thank you for this time we have together to see the picture of your grace as you are providing uh, from ancient times uh, the solution to the sin problem and how you are working things out through history ultimately to culminate in uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the sin penalty for us on the cross. And so, Father, we are thankful that we have this and that that we can understand that this this thread runs all the way through the Bible and that it is unified and that you cannot just go in and chop it up and take this piece and that piece out saying, oh, this is a nice story, that's a nice story, but that all of this dovetails together into a, a perfect, beautiful picture of your grace and your goodness and your sovereignty. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.